You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. We're looking at the fall of Saul 3.0 here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is the third and final event in Saul's rejection as king over Israel. And we've already covered the first two. You know, the first one was when uh, Saul took it upon himself to offer sacrifices and just in a real presumptuous way, prideful way. And that marked the beginning of his basically departing from the ways of the Lord. The second event there was when he made that rash vow. We looked at that in chapter 14 and he said, hey, no one eat any food today. And we saw that that was also a very selfish thing. Um, just you know, thinking about himself and wanting his appearance to look right in front of others. And so that was what was going on with that one. And now we come to this third thing, this third event in Saul's life that really marks the last straw for God in, in his rejection of Saul and his dynasty as king over Israel. So we're going to be looking at that. And the theme of our message this morning is going to be to obey is better than sacrifice. Okay, That is really at the crux of what is wrong in Saul's life. He uh, is, is okay with external appearances. And he goes through with the outside, you know, the religious rituals. But his heart is far from God. And what is it that marks a heart that is close to the Lord? A simple thing called obedience. It's the obedience of our lives that marks where we are in our relationship with God, okay? So that's the theme. Let's look first at 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47. I'm just going to read through this because we didn't cover this last week. It's just a real quick summary, okay? But let's read those verses, starting in verse 47 of 1 Samuel 14. We read, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel, and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Pause right here for a second. This is just a short summary of Saul's reign as king in Israel. And so as you can see, he has a very tough job cut out for him from the very beginning. Israel is surrounded by lots of enemies, and Saul is really going to spend most of his life uh, defending or consolidating the land of Israel. Okay, That's kind of what his kingdom, his kingship is really all about. And, and we will realize that God has really chosen him for this purpose, for this reason, uh, because Saul was a... a uh, he was good at recruiting warriors, and he was good at uh, you know, being a, at least a visible leader in appearance. Okay. Next, we read a summary about his family in verse 49. It says, The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michal. Okay, that's... It's not Michael, it's Michal, all right? And you gotta, you gotta make the sound, okay? It's a, you just wanna hawk that loogie, you know, when you say that name. I just wanted to let you in on that secret this morning. Verse 50, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. Okay, I can't stop doing it now. Sorry. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, 
Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now, there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. So one thing that we notice right away here is that Saul had five children. He had three sons and two daughters. But perhaps what really stands out is that Saul only has one wife. Did you guys catch that? (laughs) This is a rarity amongst the kings of Israel. One wife. Why do I bring that up? Well, it's no accident that Saul, with one wife, seems to have much fewer family problems than all of the other kings of Israel who had more than one wife. Am I saying that there's a problem with having two wives? Yes, I am. That was not God's original intention. Okay, Now, and you can read even in the book of Deuteronomy, God said that the kings were not to increase their wives, right? And, and that was never God's original intention. What happened there is that uh, they began to put the cultural norms above God's perfect will for that area of their lives, and they suffered the consequences because of it. Uh, we also learned here that Saul raised a standing army full of Israel's best fighting men, and he did that in order to deal with the problem of the Philistines, which were really threatening Israel all throughout Saul's lifetime. So after that short summary there at the end of chapter 14, we're going to dive now into a more detailed account, as I said, of that third event where Saul is going to be cementing his rejection as the king over Israel, and it's going to lead to the end of his family dynasty. Look at, look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. We read, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. A very serious command here from the Lord. Something that people in today's culture wrestle with and have trouble with, the fact that God would order a war in which the destruction of even women and children is ordered. Samuel gives Saul these very specific instructions though. And notice this is not just a war of aggression, nor is this a war of self-defense. This is God himself commanding Saul to fight what is known as a holy war. And I want to explain that to you here because I think this will help you to understand some things. A holy war is only seen in the Old Testament. Okay, in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we uh, talked about this. If you were here on those Wednesday nights, you know about holy wars. I've explained them before. But this war is specifically commanded by God, and it is also going to be fought with God's help. Okay? And, and we should never confuse this with the so-called holy wars or crusades of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1200s. Two totally different things. Okay, we know from Scripture the only holy wars were in the Old Testament 
And there will not be another holy war until the battle of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. That is a war that will be fought in Israel. And then there are also two more holy wars recorded in Scripture. One will be the battle of Armageddon, which is prophesied of in Revelation chapter 19. And the third holy war will be the last battle in Revelation chapter 20. You guys can check those scriptures, Ezekiel 38, 39, Revelation 19, Revelation 20. Those are the only other times when we see that God is actually going to not only command a battle, but also lead that battle. And that is a mark of a holy war. God not only commands, but he also is giving aid in that battle. Now, in a holy war, the people and their material goods are to be completely devoted to God. Everything about that war is, is devoted unto God. In other words, it is to be, uh, some of it set apart for destruction. Uh, sometimes God sets it apart to be given or gifted to God's work, the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, but in this case, he commands everything was to be destroyed. That means there was to be no prophet. No glory for the army. It was all to be devoted to God. And if you would like to understand a little bit more about what is behind the Holy War, I encourage you to go back and listen to uh, some of the studies from the book of Deuteronomy where I address this, okay? But basically, let me tell you, Amalek was not innocent in this. Uh, you can read in the, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, 18, and 19, some of the things that were happening in the promised land, some of the things that were being perpetuated by the people that lived in the promised land, and it was a very fallen, corrupted society. Disgusting things happening there. And so, in a sense, uh, God is also commanding this war so that these people would no longer continue to perpetuate this culture of sin which could have permeated Israel and destroyed Israel from the inside. So all of that kind of explains where God is coming from when he gives this command. And, and, and so all the people of Amalek, all the possessions from this war were to be placed under a ban and set aside for destruction. That's God's judgment on the Amalekite people. And this is also God's war. So he commanded it through Samuel, the prophet, and it's meant to be in retaliation, notice, for what the Amalekites had done when Israel was in the wilderness. And I want to show you guys from Deuteronomy chapter 25 what we see happened to the Israelites. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary. He did not fear God. Therefore it shall be that when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So notice the Amaleks had attacked the Israelites first, and hit them right where they were weak and unprepared. And it's believed that they killed many women and children of the Israelites. And so partly because of that shady attack, partly because of the wickedness of the Amalekite people, God has sworn now to blot them out. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 4. 
So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah, <clears throat> excuse me, Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. <clears throat> the Kenites, just so you know, were connected to Moses through his wife Zipporah. And because of that connection, Saul is reluctant now to attack while they might be part of the collateral damage. And if you'll notice there, this is setting a precedent. God deals with other nations based on how they deal with his children, Israel. And that's an important precedent to understand when you're studying the Bible. In fact, if you've ever read Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the judgment between the sheep and the goats. And the only difference between the sheep and the goats is going to be their treatment of Israel. Their treatment, how they've treated Israel during that tribulation period of time. Okay, that's something that a lot of people don't realize. God takes it very seriously how people treat his children, the Israelites. And so the Kenites here are spared. And in verse uh, 8, we see that although Saul has mostly fulfilled God's command here, he doesn't quite go all the way. He says, he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So notice here, they were willing to destroy things that they, they thought were useless, but they were not willing to destroy things that they thought had value. So the narrative drops a very clear hint for us, if you're paying attention. Saul wanted to do his best to keep everybody happy. And so he held back his hand from destroying the best of the spoils of this campaign, something that was supposed to be devoted to God. Little does he know that this act of disobedience is, is one that is going to trigger repercussions that cannot be reversed. Look at verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. What does it mean here that God regretted having set up Saul as king? Some people uh, have been confused by this, wondering how it is that God uh, could, could somehow regret a, a decision that he had made. But I want to point out to you that in this case, the narrator of the story is explaining God's removing of Saul in a simple way that all of us can understand, saying that God has regretted from setting up Saul as king. What God is doing here is expressing deep emotional sorrow over Saul's failure to live up to who he was supposed to be 
and the trouble that it is going to now bring upon Israel. God is expressing sorrow over that. God, we know from Scripture, God does not actually change His mind. That's actually an impossibility. But He does experience deep emotional sorrow over things that people do. Think of it in this way. In in, in a very similar way, you and I experience deep emotional sorrow when someone that we know who is following the Lord... And then suddenly that person, or I shouldn't say suddenly, but through a series of you know, subtle events in their life, they cease from following the Lord and they begin to follow their own path. That is truly a heart-wrenching thing to watch, isn't it? And, and I, would, I would bet that most of us here in this room have seen that happen. I personally, as a pastor, have seen this happen countless times. Where men and women are on fire for Jesus, bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. And then through a series of events, they find themselves doubting God, calling God's word into question, and then sitting in judgment over God and over God's word and getting to a place where their hearts are hard against the Lord. Exactly like what Saul does. Exactly how Saul turned away from following the Lord. Do you notice it says that he was following the Lord at one point? At one point he was following God's will. And yet now God is deeply sorrowful because he has turned away. It's a heart-wrenching thing. You can also see in those verses there that Samuel loved Saul. That Samuel had developed a very strong friendship with Saul. And, and, and this is evident by the fact that he grieved for Saul. It says that he cried out all night long. Samuel was on his face. He was torn up over this decision that Saul, that, that, that Saul was turning away from following after God. In verse 12, we read, So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. And he has gone around, passed by, and now gone down to Gilgal. Notice there, the the, the pride issue, again, coming to the surface. Now it's getting to the point where Saul is comfortable setting up a monument for himself. Guys, we have got to be warned. We have got to be careful. When we begin to set up monuments for ourselves, the end is near. Okay, when when and, and, And I'll say that. You know, we just need to be very careful. Setting up monuments to ourselves is not God's heart. Verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you, you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, they have They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. I want to point out two subtle points uh, of emphasis, two subtle shifts, I should say, in verse 15. Notice that Saul, first of all, says, oh, they have brought them up. (laughs) Samuel confronts him, what's the bleeding of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen? And immediately Saul says, oh, they, they brought those up here. And then notice also, he says, they brought them to sacrifice to the Lord your God. 
Saul has become entrenched in pride. He no longer accepts responsibility for his leadership and actions, but blames others now for his decisions. And not only that, we notice that he views his relationship with God in a different way now. Verse 16. Then Samuel says, or said to Saul, be quiet. So spoken like a true prophet right there, huh? Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So Samuel's not having it. He's cutting through the junk. He's cutting through the excuses. It says, and he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head or were not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? In other words, when you were humble, Saul, didn't the Lord anoint you at that time and bless you? Verse 18, now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, and best, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice Saul is insisting he has done nothing wrong, and he's still refusing to accept responsibility for his actions. He's putting it on others, and he's trying to play it off as if all along he had a plan to really just, you know, sacrifice all this stuff to the Lord. Verse 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. That's the theme verse of the chapter and it's the crooks of the matter. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. In other words, let me explain what's happening there. In the Levitical system of the law, there were certain sins that would result in you being cut off. And being cut off meant that you were actually turned over to God for judgment. And that's what has happened now in Saul's life. He has been cut off and he is now going to be turned over to the Lord's hands uh, for judgment. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, if you like to underline in your Bible, That phrase, I feared the people and obeyed their voice, is a good one to underline because it tells you the motive behind Saul's disobedience. Okay, He's living to please the wrong entity. Verse 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. 
So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Notice Saul's priorities are mixed up here. Instead of desiring to please God, he's really living to please people. He cares more about his outer image than his inner character. And again, we talked about this last week. The moment that we begin to care more about our outer image, how we appear to other people, and and we don't care about our inner character, there's a problem. There's a problem. Let's continue. Let's finish out this chapter. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him consciously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said to him, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, he was deeply sorrowful, deeply heart in his heart, just sorrowing over Saul's life, that that Saul was making these decisions. Let's take a few minutes as we wrap this up this morning. And I want to point out where pride has taken Saul. Just like we did last week, I want to look at Saul as a picture of the carnal man or the natural man. A man who is living according to his sinful nature. A man who has factored God out of things and is living now for himself primarily. And the first thing that we note is that Saul went from following the Lord to following his own way. Look back there in in verse 11, if you will, with me, where we see that Saul, it says that Samuel, or, or that the Lord was grieving because Saul had turned back from following after him. So we see Saul has now fully turned and is following his own way, what he believes to be right in his own eyes. That is what the natural man does. The natural man will always choose a path that seems to be of highest benefit to the self-life. Whatever is going to bring about what the selfish ambitions or the self-centered ambitions are in a person's life. Uh, I wanted to share a story from my own life regarding this that I've seen in myself. Before coming here to Paris, Texas... I was actually wrestling with the idea of planting another church in Costa Rica. Rebecca and I had traveled to a place there in Costa Rica that was on our hearts, uh, a place called Cartago, and we were seriously praying about planting another church there in Costa Rica. 
But when we went to visit that, that, that city and we, we walked the streets and we spent time in prayer, we met certain people and ate in a couple of different restaurants, we really did not sense the Lord leading us in that venture of faith. It was as if the Lord went silent. Now, of course, I continued to pray that God would speak to me and show me what he wanted us to do, but I also began to look for a different place in Costa Rica where I could go and plant another church. I was ready to turn the church in Costa Rica over to Pastor Francisco and go to another place and try to replicate that work. But around the same time, Rebecca and I also began to feel that it might be good for us, for our spiritual health, to come back home, back to the United States, where God might be able to pour into us and refresh our family for a time and possibly even put us in a place where we would be in a position to help other church plants. And to be honest, I was striving in my flesh to plant another church. I didn't fully realize this, though. I didn't fully realize that I was trying in my flesh to do my own thing until God spoke to me at a key moment through one of my close friends. I still do this today, but several of my friends were meeting together, just a small group of us. We, we do it from time to time. And as we were talking and praying for each other, one of my friends spoke to me, he said, Phil, God desires obedience more than sacrifice. And, and in that moment, it was as if God just opened up my heart and spoke to me through my friend in, in a solid, powerful way. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. And I realized in that moment that I was the one who was wrestling with this wanting to go out and to plant another church. You see, I have a heart for Costa Rica, I have a heart for Latin America, but I have a heart for ch uh, church planting. And I was trying to do this in my own strength. And the Lord spoke and said, hey, that's not what I want you to do. And so through that voice speaking to me, through one of my friends, instead of going out and striving to do things in my own strength and power, God was calling me to sit back, to trust him to obey him, that he had something different. So he told me to wait on him until he was going to lead me clearly to where I needed to be. And that ended up being right here at Calvary Chapel, Paris, Texas. I'm so thankful to the Lord for bringing me and my family here. But that's an example of how we can strive to do things in our own flesh. As Christians, we often do this. We'll, we'll, we'll just not even think about it with some things. But what about like, Praying about, if you're a single person here today, what about praying and, and surrendering the, the finding of a spouse to the Lord and bringing the Lord into that situation, allowing God to lead you to the right person at the right time in your life? What about a job change? God, I don't want to strive in my flesh to, to get into a job that you don't want me to be in. I'm going to surrender this to you and I'm going to allow you to lead me in this. See, the natural man wants to take over. And begin to do things the way that you think you should do them. The way that makes sense to you or a way that will promote yourself. But listen, we need to learn a lesson from Saul's life. He had turned away from following the Lord and he was following his own way. We don't want to be that kind of a Christian. Secondly, we also see in Saul's life that he went from humility to self-centeredness. He was a humble man at the beginning of his reign, but he ends up really becoming a self-centered man. We know that there in verse 12 where we see that Saul was built, building monuments 
to himself. He, he built a monument to himself. Now you say, well, I would never do something like that. But do we do the same thing in different ways, perhaps with the digital media culture that we have today, the social media pages that we have? We, we, we kind of have a monument to the self-life, don't we? <laughs> this is all about me. Here I am. And, and, and we have to be careful that we don't stray into a life of just promoting ourselves to anyone and everyone. Because that's not God's way. That's the way of the natural man. That's the way that our flesh would love to be pampered and treated like a, a celebrity. But that's not God's way. You see, we have to battle this flesh life, this carnal mentality. And we have to realize that God calls us to a life of service. A life of decreasing so that Christ may increase. Thirdly, we also see that Saul went from a place of accepting responsibility for his actions to a place of blaming others. Guys, this is always a mark of the flesh. We talked about this last week as well, didn't we? I, this is something I struggle with personally as well. You know, not wanting to take responsibility sometimes for the way that I lead my family. Or the grumpy attitude that I have with my kids, you know, and I want to justify it. Well, I had a tough day today. They should just be understanding, you know. And I want to blame them or blame circumstances for the way I'm acting. But guys, that's the way of the flesh. And I want to encourage you, especially you men that are husbands here today and you're leading a family. Hey, take responsibility for your leadership role in that home Take responsibility for your actions. And, and, and really, let's just an encouragement for all of us here today. We're responsible for our lives and our actions. The time that we have been given to live our lives. We need to stop blaming others for things that are happening in our lives. And we need to step forward and say, you know what? Hey, that's the flesh way of dealing with things. God's way is for me to take responsibility for what I'm responsible for. Now, if it's not me, then don't take it. Don't take it on yourself if it's not of you. But if it is you, then accept that responsibility and stop acting like Saul who wallowed in self-pity and blamed others and put it off on others and continued to be a poor leader. Fourthly, we see that Saul went from fearing God to fearing men. From fearing God to fearing men. Saul started out in his life. He was full of the fear of God. He was a humble man. He was excited to serve the Lord, and he was excited about the possibilities that God had for him. But somewhere along the line, he began to care more about what people thought than about what God thought. And guys, this is a trap. This is a trap of the enemy. This is where he wants to get us, to where we as people are all about an outer image and an appearance to other people than about what's really going on in our hearts and lives. And we've got to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. Lastly here, Samuel is a picture of the spirit-filled believer. Because, first of all, he values obedience to God above an external appearance. In verse 22 and 23, Samuel said to Saul, Hey, obedience is better than sacrifice. All these outer religious rituals, Saul, they don't mean... Anything to God compared to your heart. The motive of your heart 
is what God is looking at. And God values your obedience more than your external appearance, more than religious ritual, more than looking right in other people's eyes. And so a spiritful believer will do the same. You'll learn that God values obedience. Obedience, it's a simple thing, but it's very difficult, isn't it? It can be so hard to, when it comes down to it, to choose to obey. But that's what God calls us to do. And then secondly, the spiritual believer doesn't hesitate to deal with sin in its sources. Agag is a great representation to us in this story of the sinful nature, guys. That's, that's where the application kicks in, just in case you didn't know. Agag becomes a great picture of how we are to deal with sin and the sinful nature in our lives. Okay, We're not to keep it around for those moments when we feel that we're justified to go ahead and comfort ourselves with that pet sin that we keep in the closet or we keep hidden away on our iPhones or we keep hidden away in the computer, whatever it might be. We need to realize that God is calling Christians everywhere to deal with sin and its sources. Romans chapter 13, the verse will be on the screen. Romans chapter 13 provides a great example of doing this. It says, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. If anybody's sleeping this morning, it's time to wake up. We're almost done. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13 says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key. It's not just a life of turning away from things. It's a life of running towards Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Hey, if we sit around and make provision for the lust of the flesh, we'll, we'll go there every time. It's just who we are. Sinful nature and all. So the Bible tells us and encourages us to not only turn away from those things, but Run towards something. If you're not running towards Jesus Christ to put on the Lord and to make no provision for the flesh, then you will find yourself slipping into those fleshly things, those fleshly pastimes. What part of your life do you need to treat like Samuel treated Agag today? What area of your sin nature do you need to cut off and destroy from your life today. Agag is a picture or a type, if you will, of the sin that so easily entangles us. Samuel is a picture of what we must do in a spiritual sense if we're going to walk in obedience to the Lord our God. Listen, Christians, we should hate sin and we should not tolerate Sinful, our sinful nature making provision 
for the flesh, making allowances for the flesh so that it can remain alive and well. Listen, we need to learn to cut it out and to live for the Lord our God with all that we are. So I know that that might seem drastic to some of you. But that's what God calls us to as Christians. We don't play around with sin. We don't let sin deceive us and get to a place where it becomes a little pet in our lives that we take care of and nurture and make provision for. And so I think the Lord is challenging some of us today through the voice of his Holy Spirit. He knows how to do that. Convicting perhaps some, challenging others. Maybe it's a sin that is entangling you and keeping you from even running that race that God is calling you to run. Maybe it's a weight, not necessarily a sin, but a weight, something that's holding you back from being able to run your race well. Those are things that we've got to give to the Lord this morning. And I want to challenge you to do that, to make a commitment today to the Lord to examine your heart and allow him to show you those things that you need to treat like Samuel treated Agag in a spiritual sense. This is a spiritual message it's, 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 a, it's a great picture, and we're called to apply it in a spiritual sense in our lives when it comes to sin and the flesh. Let's pray.